This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, I first met Alvin and Heidi Toffler in the 1970s and worked with them on a project about anticipatory democracy. Toffler's book, Future Shock, had really changed how people thought about things. Providentially, the publisher decided to bring it out in three different colors so that when you walked into a store, you had your own version of Future Shock right there. The Tofflers went on to write what I think is, in some ways, their most important book, The Third Wave, published in 1984. It had an enormous impact and was built on some earlier work done by various academics on the whole concept of the scale of the information revolution. But the Tofflers had a remarkable capacity for popularizing things and bringing them home. Alvin and Heidi had a daughter named Karen who tragically died in 2000 at the age of 46 after more than a decade of suffering from Guillain-Barre syndrome. After her death, Alvin and Heidi established the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust to help fund neurological medical research breakthroughs. Here to talk about the work which the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust has developed, which they are funding today, I'm really pleased to welcome my three guests. Deborah Westfall, the Executive Advisor to the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust, and two of the Trust Toffler Scholars and Grant Recipients, Aditya Gopanath, Postdoctoral Neuroscience, University of Florida, and Vijaya Kolachalama, Associate Professor at Boston University, on how the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust helps fund advanced neurological disease research and helps young professional researchers early in their career doing this research, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. I'm really delighted to have all three of you on. I took great pride in taking Toffler down to see General Don Starry, who was the head of the Training and Doctrine Command, who had read Toffler's work and said, if this is accurate, it forces us to change all of our thinking, and literally had reshaped the Army's battle doctrine and led them to develop what they called air-land battle, because they wanted the Air Force totally integrated with the Army based on a whole concept of a third wave of information. And as a result, much of what we see today as an integrated team across all the services grew out of the work of Alvin and Heidi Toffler, which is kind of an amazing achievement. I also had the great privilege of taking them to see Vice President George H.W. Bush and talk about the implications that their work had for thinking about government and society. The Tofflers were remarkable people, and I don't think there's any way to explain it beyond that just they were 100% human they totally loved life. They were engaged in the life of the mind, 
but they were also just engaged in being good friends. I stayed with them in New York, and I stayed with them in Los Angeles after they moved out there. And every time I'd see them, they were remarkably helpful. As we were developing a new set of ideas which led to the contract with America, they would come and visit us in the Capitol, and we'd sit around and brainstorm. Some of our members thought we were nuts because we kept talking about all this future stuff, but others began to figure out, hey, this is real. Candidly, today, the House could use a little more tofflerism and a little less stupidity in how it's doing things. Let's start, Deborah, if we could, with you. Can you talk about the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust, what it is today, how it got started, and how you see its evolution and its impact? Sure. So you did a wonderful job describing the Tofflers. They were amazing people, visionary thinkers, renowned authors, and futurists. And they really dedicated their life to understanding and shaping the future across this very rapidly changing world. Through their books and their speeches, they connected with people, human to human, to share ideas, to learn, and to champion future-focused consciousness. To honor their legacy, they continue their mission through the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust. Al passed away in 2016. Heidi passed away in 2019. And the trust was established in 2019, named after their daughter, Karen, which you knew personally, and you talked about her disease. The trust is a nonprofit organization and is working to revolutionize medical research, education, and technology. And we're really focused on these young professionals conducting early stage research that explores new ventures and creating new medical knowledge. And that's really important because it's these young researchers who are just starting their careers, they're starting to build their labs, they're maturing their area of focus, and sometimes their research is pushing the limits of and outside boundaries. And so that support to them is very, very important. I should mention just for a second, because I think people don't often realize how powerful an idea can be, that Future Shock, for example, when it came out, actually sold as many books in Japan as it sold in the United States. Now, considering that we are more than twice the size of Japan, gives you some sense of how much they penetrated Japanese culture. And when their book came out, which really described the information revolution, the third wave, the Chinese Communist Party actually made a decision at the highest levels that they would popularize their book throughout all of China. I remember one time Alvin telling me what it was like to be standing in Shanghai and have people walk up holding a Chinese copy of his book and asking him to sign it. Gorbachev was aware of the concepts that they had. And so these were two people who had had a remarkable set of insights that applied to the entire human race and who had come to understand from their daughter's long, painful disease that really one of the most complicated areas of medical development is this whole question of neurological activity, whether it is the kind of disease that Karen had or whether it's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or a whole range of other things. And I think in that sense, the Toffler Scholars Program is a perfect example of what the Tofflers would have favored in having a deep belief in a better future and in the potential. So why don't you talk a little bit, before we get to them, about the fact you have over 60 Toffler Scholars from 10 universities. And we had specifically picked and asked BJ and Aditya to be with us today because of the unique and remarkable work they're doing. But why don't you briefly describe for us, if you would, Deborah, the whole concept of the Toffler Scholars Program and the universities it works with? Yeah, so when the trust was created, we looked around to see where other funding was and support was being done. And, you know, there's a lot of work and great work that's being done by existing foundations, by government agencies in this area of trying to understand the brain and the brain-body connection. But what seems to be somewhat limited or a gap in that support is for the ideas that are somewhat outside 
the current day thinking. And as you just mentioned, you know, it's a very Toffler-esque thing to kind of challenge today's notions, challenge today's hypotheses and understanding, and kind of step back and question what are we doing or how are we doing it or what do we know or what don't we know. The scholars are those individuals. They're courageous. They have ideas. They have hypotheses for what research we might be able to take on that today doesn't have a lot of support. But tomorrow, it could lead to the big breakthroughs. And so the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust was created to give that support You know, it's the seed money for the early pipeline research that is needed so that researchers can get started with this research, get a few breakthroughs, publish, get the research out there, and then let other organizations such as the NIH or the larger foundations see that they can make progress and then fund at larger amounts. And so we feel like we're filling a real important niche and the upfront part of the research pipeline so that we can look for that new science, look for that new knowledge that really might lead to the breakthrough or the end of some of these horrible diseases. I had a particular interest in Alzheimer's because I had taught the oldest men's Bible study back when I was a very young professor. I watched as several of the members of that Bible study themselves came down with Alzheimer's. My sister-in-law's father came down with Alzheimer's. His wife came down with Parkinson's. And so it was really a very complicated situation. I co-chaired with Democratic Senator Bob Kerry a three-year study on Alzheimer research, which actually, when we testified at the Senate, had the largest number of senators I'd ever seen at a hearing, because so many of them have direct ties through their families with Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. There are over 5 million Americans living with it. As we age, the current projection is it'll be 14 million by 2050. And of course, Parkinson's is the the second leading neurodegenerative disorder. So, Aditya and Kalachalama, and I'll let you decide which one wants to jump in first here. Can you explain to us, even with all the attention that's been paid over the years, we still have a challenge of an accurate diagnosis and an early enough diagnosis. Can you all talk a little bit about this whole diagnostic challenge? Yes, thank you for having us. Before I go there, I just want to thank the Toffler Trust for believing in us, believing in our science. And in fact, I received the award in 2021. And already, I think with that support, we've been able to make a lot of progress in terms of building novel tools that would allow researchers to sort of come up with better ways to diagnose Alzheimer's. In terms of just the background, I think the way we want to think about Alzheimer's is broadly in the category of dementia, right? So dementia is a term that you would want to use to describe memory loss. And there are many ways dementia can be caused, right? And Alzheimer's disease is sort of really the primary cause of dementia. About 70% of the cases who have dementia, that's because they have Alzheimer's. And the complexity is not about diagnosing if somebody has dementia, because there are some very standardized tests that are out there that any practitioner can administer to assess if somebody has dementia. The problem is actually more related to understanding the root cause of dementia, right? So dementia can happen if somebody actually even has depression or somebody who had a head injury or somebody who had Parkinson's or even Alzheimer's, right? So the challenge is not about dementia, but the challenge is about understanding the root cause of dementia. And unfortunately, the gold standard diagnosis that is out there today is only when the person is dead, Right. So they actually open up the brains and then they see what's actually inside. And then, then they can confirm that they have Alzheimer's or some other issue. Can I just say as a non-researcher, it's a little depressing to learn that we can only diagnose you after you die. It strikes me that that limits the amount of medical intervention to minimize the damage. Right. That's actually has been the biggest challenge. But I think over the past few years, There have been several technologies that are out there that are allowing us to come up with the best possible 
ways to assess if somebody has Alzheimer's disease. For example, there is research that is going on in the world about how do you sort of come up with a blood test to assess certain proteins that point to the risk of Alzheimer's. There are imaging uh, modalities such as PET scans and other ways to sort of understand what kind of proteins are deposited in the brain to diagnose Alzheimer's. So it's getting better, but still there is a belief in the community that the gold standard is still postmodern. But as a potential patient, the earlier we can intervene and the earlier we have some sense of slowing down the rate of the disease, the better the likelihood of a successful intervention. So if I can only intervene after you die, I sort of have lost all of my opportunities here. What is the work like? Because you almost need a relatively inexpensive, widely usable test, even in your 30s, to begin to find early onset. Correct me if I get this wrong. Well, the relatively cheap aspect, I think, is very attractive. I think we are hopefully going to get there at some point. And also detecting the disease early on, I think, is very, very important, crucial, especially today, because I'm sure you have seen the news about two drugs that were recently approved by the FDA. One of them is named as licanimab, and the other one named as aducanimab. So finally, we have some hope that there are drugs that can potentially cure Alzheimer's, right? So because of the fact that there are these drugs that are approved, there is now a huge push in the community to really think about how to detect the disease at the right time so that these drugs can be given to those patients. So a lot of technologies and a lot of research has actually been done to sort of identify those patients who might actually get benefit from these drugs. So clearly, things are getting better. And in fact, one of the things that we are trying to do in our lab is to come up with AI-based approaches to to take routinely collected data, clinical data, because, you know, when a patient walks into the hospital, whether it's a neurologist or even a general practitioner, they're trying to basically gather a lot of information, right? So based on their examination, based on the demographics of the patient, based on their medical history, based on their family history, they sort of get all that information and then try to come up with the best possible way to diagnose the disease and hopefully early in the stage. And what we are doing in our lab is to combine all this information using artificial intelligence and then seeing if there is a way for us to come up with a better way to diagnose the disease, especially sort of understand whether the patient has, let's say, Alzheimer's and maybe some combination of Alzheimer's with other kinds of things that are going on in the patient. So if we do that well, then hopefully we can identify those patients at the right time. And if we do that, hopefully these drugs can be given to those patients at the right time. I think that's the plan. And because of the fact that we have these drugs that are recently approved, there is a lot of push in the community to sort of really come up with better ways to diagnose the disease. Because if we didn't have any drugs, then it's all about just managing the patient, which is completely different as opposed to actually giving the patient a drug and then hoping there is going to be some benefit that's coming out, right? So this is a good time, and I think things are only getting better. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. 
And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order March to the Majority right now at gingrich360.com book, and it'll be shipped directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. Go to gingrich360.com book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com book. me of the period around 1970 when Richard Nixon proposed a war on cancer. And at that stage, we had very few tools that were truly successful. But over the depth and the range of the research, we have just have made amazing strides in turning cancer into something which people can survive and which in many cases they go into remission. And in other cases, it's manageable for decades. So there's some hope here that we're in the very beginning stages of being able to deal with neurological conditions in the same kind of science-based pattern of gradually learning more and more and having greater and greater tools. Now, let me ask, Aditya, you focus a lot on Parkinson's. First of all, can you talk a little bit about the difference between Alzheimer's and Parkinson's as they manifest themselves, both in physical characteristics, but also in terms of what's happening in your neurological system? Yes, absolutely. So to start to echo what Vijaya said, we'd like to thank the Trust for believing in us this far. And of course, I'd like to thank you for inviting us here to talk with you today. As Vijaya was also telling us, often Alzheimer's is considered a dementia, so it can be diagnosed by a skilled clinician using a battery of tests. Parkinson's typically does not present as dementia. So a person would usually go to see their primary care physician or a neurologist, a specialist if they have one, because they suddenly notice that they're not able to perform certain tasks. So when somebody's reaching for a mug of coffee in the morning, they suddenly find that their hand doesn't quite make it all the way to the mug, or once they grasp the mug, their hands are shaking. And that's usually one of the first signs they have a tremor in one hand or the other. Now, when a person has this kind of issue, they would see their doctor. Their doctor might suggest that they go see a neurologist, a specialist. And in the hands of a skilled specialist, usually they can make a 70 to 80% accurate diagnosis of Parkinson's based on the movement problems that they're having. Now, on the other hand, by the time a person has presented with these movement problems, 60-70% of the cells in the brain that signal movement, these are called dopamine neurons. They make a certain neurotransmitter called dopamine. 60-70% to 70% of these cells have already died. So by the time a person has the movement symptoms that they'd go to the doctor for, 
as far as we're aware at this point in time, they may be beyond the point where we can bring it back to where they were before. And that really brings us back to the need to have diagnostic tests that could help us detect and diagnose Parkinson's before we get to that point. The other thing to keep in mind is that typically 10 to 20 years, even before they have these movement symptoms, a lot of these patients with Parkinson's report symptoms that are outside of the brain. They have gastrointestinal problems, they have constipation, they have mood changes. And so this is telling us that there are things that are happening way in advance of the presentation of the tremor. However, we haven't yet become skilled enough to be able to detect it at that stage. It sounds to me like Parkinson's is a wider part of your neurological system and that Alzheimer's tends to be focused in the brain. I mean, is that a reasonably accurate, simple-minded way of putting it? I think that's fairly reasonable. Vijaya, do you think that's an accurate way to put it? I don't call myself a Parkinson's disease expert, but I think the point Aditya is trying to make is that there are these physical observations that you can make on this patient who has Parkinson's disease in terms of, let's say, the way they walk, the way they hold hands, the way they speak. I think those are more apparent. And I think it's fair to assume that, you know, those are things that are kind of outside the brain that are kind of manifested. In the case of Alzheimer's, it's basically the memory symptoms that are, I think, pretty apparent. So I think that's a fair way to describe. And in both cases, getting an accurate early diagnostic system is a key part of trying to figure out how to get ahead of the disease. Because if, if I understand the two of you, there's a very high value to an early intervention and being able to minimize the progression of the disease in both cases. That's absolutely right. There's a whole issue about dopamine signaling in the brain. One of you has to walk me through the whole concept of dopamine signaling and what the correlation is. Absolutely. So let's say a person is riding a bicycle. There are certain neurons that are sending signals to different parts of the brain that tell the person to make this continuous movement. Now, on the other hand, when somebody is reaching for a mug of coffee, that we call that intentional movement. So the person reaches out and their brain is sending a signal that their hand has to go towards this target and make this one very specific motion. That's a slightly different circuit. And so when a dopamine neuron sends that signal to release dopamine, we're signaling for one of two different kinds of movement, at least in the context of Parkinson's disease. And it seems that in Parkinson's, it's the neurons that are sending the signals to help a person initiate and complete a movement, like reaching for a mug of coffee or picking up their pen to make their signature. These are the neurons that seem to be primarily affected. And it turns out that when we started this study, for the past 50 to 100 years, people have known that the neurons in the brain that are signaling movement are the ones that are affected in Parkinson's. But in the past 10 to 15 years, a number of researchers have also found similar markers, actually the same markers that are on these neurons in the brain are also found on immune cells that are these are immune cells, white blood cells that are circulating in our blood. And so when we started out the study about seven years ago, we asked a very simple question. We said, when somebody has Parkinson's, we know that these markers are changing in the brain because these neurons are dying. So then we said, okay, so is there a change in the immune system? Are these markers also changing in the immune system? And that answer ended up being a resounding yes. So what this really opens the door to is this is something that you alluded to and that Vijaya also alluded to earlier if there were a test that could be cheaply and widely administered, say a blood test that could help detect Parkinson's disease early, this could be something that could be administered by a patient's primary care physician versus somebody who's a specialist that a patient might have to travel to see. And so this really opens the door to potentially bringing us closer to the point where somebody could get a diagnosis of Parkinson's much, much earlier than we can currently do. You're currently working with a diagnosis based on a blood test that seems to have like 96% accuracy. That's right. So we seem to have at least the same accuracy as a clinician, who, as a neurologist who makes a diagnosis in the clinic based on their movement symptoms and their response to a medication. So we seem to be right on par with the diagnostic accuracy of a neurologist and it's sort of my dream in the long term that this would be one of the tests that maybe people would get included in their blood work once they turn 50. 
as a routine monitoring system. And if something concerning pops up in a blood test like that, the physician could say, hey, you know, Mr. Jones, maybe you should go see a neurologist. I have somebody you could talk with. So it would really open the door to potentially getting people treated and evaluated much earlier than we could do right now. That's a very large jump from the way we used to look at it, right? Absolutely. The way we used to look at it was when the movement symptoms became debilitating and people didn't really have another option other than to see a specialist and seek help. That's typically when a person would go into the clinic and see their specialist. This is definitely a big jump. And currently, the studies that we have underway with the support of the trust hopefully are going to lead us to be able to diagnose Parkinson's or detect Parkinson's even earlier than I'm currently dreaming of. So, in theory, if we could detect Parkinson's before a lot of the dopamine neurons are lost, there's a chance that we could intervene at that early stage and maybe prevent the disease from ever getting to the point where we currently see it at the clinic. And of course, what I'm thinking decades into the future, hope by the time my career comes to an end, we're definitely at that stage. It's conceivable if it's a blood-based test and you're getting a diagnostic off of looking for certain specific traces, that you could literally begin to find people at a very early stage that would change dramatically our whole capacity. I mean, you could be talking 20 or 30 year difference in being able to intervene. Is that a reasonable statement? Yes, absolutely. Because all the evidence right now in people and in studies in animals and cells and dishes suggests that the changes that are happening in Parkinson's are starting decades before we're able to detect it in the clinic. So as you say, if we had a way to detect this via a blood test 10, 20, 30 years in advance, that would be the time for us to start intervening and hopefully slow or even stop the progression of the disease. Maybe we could prevent it from ever getting to the point where we know that somebody has Parkinson's. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me 
me switch then to a totally different approach that Vijaya is doing, and that's your focus on using artificial intelligence to really create an opportunity to have a much more sophisticated analytical framework. But I want to go back to the basics here. Explain to us the difference between just artificial intelligence and just mass computational analysis. Yeah, sure. I want to start by actually talking a little bit more about the point that Aditya mentioned. And I want to add one more thing to it, which is in this country and probably around the world, there is actually a shortage of expertise. Right? So we really have a shortage of neurologists who have the right skill set to make a diagnosis, whether it's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And this is actually declining. And in fact, there were some recent papers that actually mentioned about the fact that this is going to worsen in the next decade or so. And the reason is because not many people really want to be neurologists. So if you go to a medical school, most of them want to become an orthopedic surgeon or interventional cardiologist because they make probably twice more money or three times more money than a neurologist. Plus, neurologist profession is a very hard job because you have to you know, sit in front of the patient, work with the patient, and then sort of take care of them. And I think there is that part which I really wanted to add because the reason we want to build these tools, the reason we want to use AI to sort of come up with these technologies is to sort of address that need, that shortage of expertise. And one day we are hoping that these tools can be assisted in terms of making diagnosis and sort of increasing the efficiency of patient care. So in terms of AI broadly, the way I see it is that a simple computational analysis is going to basically look at the data that is out there in terms of looking at the information that's on the data. But I think AI has the ability to sort of learn from the data. And once it learns from the data, it would then have the capacity to sort of make predictions on a new instance or a new case which it has not seen before. So I think that's the advantage of using AI. And imagine in the context of this dementia due to Alzheimer's cases, what we did was we basically took data from thousands and thousands of patients around the world. We fed all this information to this AI model. And when I say data, I'm talking about all kinds of things that uh, a doctor collects in a routine clinical setting, which is demographics, medications, MRIs, you know, neuropsych tests, and other bedside cognitive tests. So this kind of information is fed into this AI model coming from all these tens of thousands of patients. And this algorithm sort of learns the pattern from all this data. And then now it's in a position to sort of predict on a new case. Look, tomorrow, imagine there is a new patient walking in and the doctor is actually seeing this patient and trying to collect information on this new patient. And at that point, if you plug this AI model, this AI model will be able to sort of learn from all the things that it has seen before and sort of infer what actually is happening on the specific patient who is of interest. So that, I think, has this ability for AI to learn from the data and make a new inference, I think, is the key. So when you talk about using artificial intelligence, what you're really suggesting is that you will presently have an ability to sort of autonomously evaluate each patient against a huge database of patients, and that over time, the analytical tool doing that will continuously learn and evolve to become more accurate at an earlier stage. And so in one way, you're both making it easier to be a neurologist, and you are enabling a neurologist to deal with vastly more cases than they could if they were still back using pre-artificial intelligence capabilities. Absolutely. We are spot on. In fact, I think that's kind of really the goal for us because we want to create tools that can be assistive to the neurologist. We don't want to replace the neurologist. We want to assist them because they want to be as efficient as possible because there is a huge load of patients who are waiting in line for their appointments. So we want to make sure we increase the efficiency in these practices so that they can do things in a shorter frame of time. Both of you are passionate. Both of you are deeply immersed in what you're doing. For young people who are kind of thinking about what they want to do with their lives, what would you tell them about your own experiences? I mean, is it fulfilling? Is it fun? Is it exciting? How would you describe how you got to be here in science? So that's actually a multifold answer, but I'm going to try and make it short. 
I got to be in science because people throughout my life, teachers primarily starting from elementary school onwards have been extraordinarily supportive and they recognized my early interest in science and nurtured it. But what really helped me turn it into a career was to find a focus, something that I was particularly passionate about. And really it's the interactions with the patients that really drives me forward because I'm seeing these individuals who are suffering with this disease that to be honest, they are seeing as a progressive decline throughout their lives. And when I see these patients on a day-to-day basis here at the Fixel Institute, I can't help but want desperately to find a way for them to move forward. Whether or not it's going to help me personally with my own health is completely irrelevant because there's this whole world of people out there who are looking for answers, who are looking for help. So when it comes down to a 15, 18-hour day for me of research, I really don't bat an eyelid at doing it because I, number one, recognize the need. Number two, I'm completely passionate about the topic and the area that I'm working in, that is Parkinson's disease and dopamine signaling both in the brain and outside of the brain and the immune system. And then finally, there's this obvious unmet need. And as a human being, as an empathetic human being, it's really impossible to ignore that. I realized when I was looking at your biography, you actually got into this in part by self-diagnosis. (laughs) So it turned out throughout my childhood and early adulthood, it turned out that I had autoimmune disease and that went undiagnosed, actually misdiagnosed as a number of different things over the course of my life until I took a step back, took my own notes, kept detailed records and recognized the patterns that led me to find a specialist that could help me obtain a correct diagnosis and treatment. And I certainly wouldn't want anybody else to go through that if I could help it. So it really becomes a personal journey. Very much so. Vijaya, how did you get involved in all this? I was born in India, and the life in India was different when I was growing up. I was very fortunate to have a close-knit family, and my parents as well as my grandmother inspired me to do science. I think what I really want to do is to have fun. In fact, I'm an associate professor here at BU, and I keep telling my students and my colleagues that this is one of the best jobs. And the reason is because in my lab, I have students who are very passionate. They come from multiple disciplines. Like, for instance, I have PhD students in computer science, MD students who are going to be future doctors, postdoctoral scholars, and engineers. So all these people are literally working in my lab, and it's a joy fun and joy to work with them on a daily basis. Obviously, there are many different problems in the world. And I think, you know, it's not fair for me to say that this is the only thing that is more important. But overall, I think I felt that the unmet need is a lot higher in the neurological disorder realm because there are very few therapies and brain is very, very complex as opposed to, you know, for example, cancer. You know, somebody has cancer, there is a test and there is a therapy potentially. Of course, not every cancer is cured. But in the context of the brain, I think there is a lot more that we can learn and sort of resolve. So I think that kind of really helps us to sort of really think about it. But personally, I think this career is so much fun. And I know we are literally doing work at the cutting edge And students in my lab really come up with new ideas every day. So it's very, very exciting to do this. Clearly, both of you are passionate. Let me just ask each of you for a second. To what extent, how important has the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust been in your research? I keep shouting about this to everybody I know. This has been an honor for me. I'm one of the earlier Toffler scholars. And when I met Deb and her colleagues, it's so amazing to actually see them participate in our research, right? That's kind of really unique. You know, I have gotten funding from a few other agencies, but I only submit my annual progress reports to them. (laughs) Whereas in the context of the Toffler Trust, it's very personal because they are really invested not just in terms of pushing the science, but also really helping us really think about the next steps, right? So Deb has connected me to several other organizations and people in several other organizations because what we want to do is we want to build tools that can hopefully be translated to the clinic one day, which means we are not just thinking about science and papers. We really want to build tech and then create companies, We want to make sure companies are a way to sort of build the tech. And then at the end of the day, that would reach the patient one day, right? So Deb is actually also helping me to really think about those elements as well. So Toffler Trust has helped us 
above and beyond just doing science. It has actually helped us to connect with more people, ask us the right questions, and also think about the next step, which is translation. Because one thing I learned from my former advisor is that there is probably no drug or a device in the market today that has not gone through a company. Because at the end of the day, a company is the thing that is taking science and then, you know, taking it to the patients. And I think that's the journey that I really want to take. And I have to thank the trust for that. Aditya, how big a factor has the trust been for you? I would echo many of Ajaya's statements there. So the trust support has been, I would say, irreplaceable. And this is really why. So the research that we're conducting sits at the intersection between two fields of science, neuroscience and immunology. And historically, at least if you go back 20 or more years, these two fields considered themselves completely separate and unrelated. But it turns out the head is connected to the rest of the body. And so the immune system and the brain do, in fact, communicate. And specifically, when we get into the neuroscience and the biology of dopamine signaling in the immune system, this has been a very difficult gap to bridge because we're talking about two different fields that really don't talk to one another. So support via the traditional funding agencies, the NIH, the other large foundations, has been difficult to come by, I would say, because it really depends on the audience who happens to read or review our research submissions. And if you have one side of the camp versus the other side of the camp reading it, it becomes very, very hard to bridge that gap. And the trust support has allowed us to move forward such that we have data, we have information that both sides of the aisle can understand, so to speak. And so without the trust support, I don't think we would have a chance. Well, Deborah, given the remarkable role that the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust and the Toffler Scholars are playing, as our listeners hear this, what can they do to be involved and to help you with the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust? Engage with us. Let us know that they're out there and they want to engage with us. I think there's lots of ways to support. We would like to do more. And so, of course, financial support is very welcome. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, all of us know somebody or are personally touched by these diseases. And it's close to us. I lost my grandfather to dementia and I lost my grandmother to ALS. So these things are very, very important to all of us. So for those listeners out there, you know, follow up with us on the website, follow up with me personally or with Aditya or VJ and engage. And then we can see where we go from there. We give grants, but as mentioned, we also love these people and we're building these relationships for the long term for their professional careers. We want them to be successful 30, 40 years from now and be able to say, hey, we were there at the beginning. It's a very Alvin and Heidi Toffler idea is let's change the world together and take this journey together. We do things like we bring all of our scholars together to have cross-collaborative discussions about what are you learning and what do you need. And we've encouraged them to even submit joint proposals back to us for grants that are looking at, as Aditya said, you know, trying to bring these communities together that may never talk to each other because the breakthroughs are going to be in those areas that are between the seams where lights aren't being shown right now. And so we're trying to shine those flashlights on those areas through, you know, networking and collaboration and then funding. And we're very hopeful and we're very proud. And I know Alvin and Heidi would be so proud of each one of our scholars. They would just be amazed at what they're doing and who they are as people. So you can follow up on our website. The information is there, thetofflertrust.org. And we would love to talk to somebody or anybody that wants to engage. Well, Deborah, Aditya, and Vijaya, I want to thank you for joining me and for educating me. The work you're doing is fascinating, and I think people will find this to be an amazing conversation. We will let everyone know that they can learn more about the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust in advancing medical research at tofflertrust.org. And I want to thank all three of you for taking time today to help educate folks. Thank you so much. Thank you to my guest, Deborah Westfall, Aditya Gopanath, and Vijaya Kolachalama. 
You can learn more about the Karen Toffler Charitable Trust on our show page at newtworld.com. Newtworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newtworld can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newtworld. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.